Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, I'm the editor of the Toolkit, and I am here today with the director of the wonderful Booksmart. And where can you, I saw Booksmart on iTunes last night, but it's, I think it's also on Hulu already. Today. Right? Today. It started on, streaming today on Hulu. So there we go. Yeah. So you can see this everywhere if you were dumb enough not to see it this, uh, in the theaters <laughs> earlier this year. Uh, Olivia Wilde. You know, it sounds like a silly question because I feel like everybody that loves movies and or works on and or works on movies, of course, it's some harbor some dream of being a director, right? So I yes. mean, it's a silly question, but it wasn't something that I necessarily knew that was something that you wanted to do. Sure. And, and so I'm wondering about the goal and is this something that you had been working towards for for a, a while? You know, it's funny. I just found a note that I wrote myself ten years ago, where I said I want to direct a movie. Full stop. Period. And I was like, wow, I kept this for a reason, and I took a picture of it, and I found that picture, and I thought, I was daring myself to do it, because even at that point, I had wanted to do it. I had felt the urge to kind of take the reins, so to speak, and to use all this information I was gleaning from my experiences as an actor. I wanted to, you know, respond in a way through action. I wanted to direct, but I was so insecure based on my lack of film school training. And I thought, like many people, I don't know if, enough about lenses. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people say. And they're like, I would direct. I just don't know enough about lenses. And that's an excuse because you don't need an encyclopedic knowledge of the technical aspects of every single element. You would need the awareness of what a collaborative experience it is and how the joy is really in hiring those people to help you make it. And I, I was really gaining the courage to lead that team. That's what I realized now I was doing is gaining the confidence to be able to circle up a group of artists and say, this idea I have in my head is worth your time. Um, But it it started with music videos, and that was based on advice from really great mentors and friends, people like Mark Romanek and Spike Jones, saying, just make a video. You know, a music video is a great non-linear, non-literal experiment. It's also feet to the fire, the amount that you yeah. have to do in such a short amount exactly, of time. Exactly, which is great. It's like what I imagine would have happened in film school. <laughs> a challenge. Take a day and then a few days to edit and make something extraordinary and poetic. I mean, that's how I describe music videos as poems. If you are going to write a film, you're going to write a novel. If you're going to make a music video, it's almost like writing a poem to find your voice and visually tell a story, which in itself is its own challenge. But it was one that I was really ready for by the time I sort of gained the courage to do it. I felt that I had pent up a lot of um, creative energy. But, you know, I I also directed a short film before then for a a program that was really great, really empowering. It was called Glamour Real Moments. It was Glamour Magazine paid kind of an extraordinary amount through corporate sponsors to let women make their first shorts. There was a nice little window there where there was some branded content, yes. which was just about like, we just want cool shorts. Yes. Go do it. And like, here's maybe like a, a small umbrella of yeah. a topic or you go do what you want with it. It's it's essential. There needs to be so many more of them. And I, I, I really um, am grateful for that experience because that first day on set, I realized I was happier than I'd ever been on a set. I realized as a director, I felt so much more comfortable, at ease, empowered and excited and uh, a friend who I'd put in the short said, dude, I've never seen you happier. You have to do this for a living. So slow creep towards jumping in the, p- the pool and saying, I'm going to direct a feature. And it's not going to be one that I wrote myself, which was its own kind of challenge. But 
but a fun one. So we don't send a listener down some Google rabbit hole. What was what was the what was the name of the short? Is okay, it- the short was called Free Hugs. Free Hugs. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, because people are passionate about this movie, and they're gonna you know oh. uh, you know they're gonna so. So Booksmart, I, my understanding is that this was a, a script, I think, that had been, a, I mean, this is something that uh, you, I think people had read yeah. and been around for a yes. while before it became an Olivia Wilde yes, project. Yes, for right. sure. Right. Oh, it had a long life before me. So so when it when it does become an Olivia Wilde project, what what direction, I think there was a rewrite, what, what, what direction do you take it into? I mean, there's something wonderful here, but then it's like, what are you going to do to kind of make this a little bit more your own or how you see it? It was almost like seeing like a plot of land and realizing you could build your dream house there. <laughs> like I read the script, uh, which was the second incarnation of the script. The original was written by Emily Halpern and Sarah Haskins in 2009. That script was on the blacklist. It earned a lot of attention for being a great idea. It was two women writing about best friends who were young women who loved each other and who were unapologetic about their intelligence. The rest of the plot was largely different, but that was the core of it. That was then rewritten in 2014 by Susanna Fogel, obviously a filmmaker in her own right, that it took it to another level. It added a lot more nuance and um, some elements that ultimately really drew me in. For instance, the character of Amy being gay was just something that I thought was refreshing because it was not the point of the film, but I loved that a friendship between two women where one was gay and one wasn't just that was just a fact and not not the ultimate sort of revelation. So she added that. She added a few other elements that I really, really admired. And I thought, okay, this plot of land is like more and more interesting as I look at it. And I thought, I wonder if they'd let me build my house here. So I pitched my pitch to Annapurna was bonkers like I'm so (laughs) lucky that it was Chelsea Barnard who heard my pitch and she's she really loves movies and loves directors and I I wrote this pitch that basically said high school is war let's make the training day of high school movies (laughs) I want this to be high stakes high octane I want to flex I want it to be visually really interesting I want to take risks I want to play with magical realism I want to add this um stop motion doll sequence I want to play with a kind of a a third act that's largely dramatic even though we're inside a comedy like I really wanted to to try things and and they were open to it and I I'm lucky that the movie I pitched is largely the movie I made which I don't think many directors first time directors specifically can say I do give other directors the advice pitch the movie you want to make not the movie you can make because that's a very important distinction there must have been something in the pitch that they saw though because in that element of you're talking about dialing up a lot of things and yeah kind of going big with it yeah and I, we had spoken before before we started rolling what, what i found so impressive about this movie in particular as a first first film is it is it is big there's and it's fast and there could be broad, big physical comedies, yeah. and then there's something very intimate and, and lovely about the two of them. And and that sense that one could switch gears like that yeah. is, is, is not something that you can get on a page. It has to be something that has to be in a vision and 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 it's a little bit easier for someone who's made a lot of films to do that because it's like oh oh, okay we get it but there had to be something in not only what you were pitching but also the way that you had seen this that made them feel like you know okay great but like how are you going to go how are you going to execute this yeah yeah i you know i used so many visual references 
that I think I, I worked hard to communicate the vision as it was in my head. And I, I could talk about the energy and tone endlessly. And that was something that I felt very sure-footed about. And I think that probably gave them a little confidence. I remember meeting with Adam McKay, who is one of our producers. And he himself is such a bold filmmaker who really um, is attracted to kind of outside-the-box bold choices. You know, he's, he's a fan of people really putting their personalities into things and he doesn't want you to play it safe or pull your punches. So we've seen vice. We've seen vice. <laughs> we've seen the big short. We've seen mm-hmm. that he's someone who personally just uses his voice very authentically. Mm-hmm. So when I met with him, a meeting that I later found out was a very significant meeting that um it had it not gone well, the movie probably wouldn't have happened with me at the helm. I didn't realize this at the time, so I kind of waltzed in with probably too much confidence and flopped down on his couch. And I was like, Adam, <laughs> let's go hard on this movie. Let's flex. Like, this is what I want to do. And this should feel like this. And this should go here. And I want to use a lot of needle drops. I want this to be, I want to take a kind of, uh, you know, a Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Scorsese energy into the teen comedy realm, which is funny that now Paul Thomas Anderson is making a teen movie. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that one is going to be really good. I can't wait. But I I really was confident in in my perception of the tone that I wanted to create. And mm-hmm. I think about that now as I'm making another film. I think that, you know, the most important skill a director has is the ability to communicate that exact intention very clearly. Um and I, you know, it's funny because people assume that all my references for this were other teen movies, and there were certainly many. You know, Breakfast Club and Fast Times were major ones. So was Ferris Bueller's. But really, for me, it was a Coen Brothers energy. I wanted this to be the Big Lebowski of teen movies as well. That one specifically because it was a Los Angeles kind of odyssey and a very simple plot. You know, man loses rug, man searches for rug, <laughs> told with such imagination and with tonally such a broad range of characters you know I knew I could get away with creating a character like Gigi because of what Julianne Moore did in that film you know that Mm -hmm. you can really go bonkers if you have a grounded plot and grounded characters the other thing is that I had this amazing cast and when I was pitching I was pitching Beanie and Caitlin as our duo and I had real confidence that with them at the center we would have the ability to play in the ways that I wanted. We know, I, I think it was Lady Bird, had Lady Bird been shown at that point? Or? When I first pitched Beanie, Lady Bird had not okay. come out. But once it did, I was like, do you see what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> Can we close this deal? I'm curious, what what was your experience with, because that was our collective experience with, with, yes. with her heading into Booksmart. Um, what was, what was your experience or what, what did you see in Caitlin in that was, that was kind of. Caitlin blew me away in short term 12. Okay. That was when I first said, who the fuck is this genius? And I really, um, loved her in men, women, and children, which not enough people saw, but she's fantastic in it. Um, I also loved Caitlin in Detroit mm-hmm. and I'd seen her in Justified and I thought this range is incredible. Who is this woman? She can do anything. And then I met with her and she was so funny and her timing was so brilliant. She she's a, she's very smart and very dry. And I had met with Beanie at that point and I thought what they have in common is deep intelligence in their bones which cannot be faked and a kind of a, a dry irreverence that I think people would assume is beyond their years. Um they don't really push their comedy it's it's just a very 
confident and quiet and smart and sharp sense of humor. And I thought, well, those two would organically find each other as children had they been in the same school. This would have happened. This friendship would have occurred. I will say, Caitlin was someone the studio was really leaning towards before I came on board. I just convinced them to officially attach her and Mm -hmm. then bring Beanie on um, to be her partner. But I realized at a certain point that we had made it official before they had met. (laughs) So when I watched them meet, my heart suddenly froze thinking, oh my God, what if they just hate each other? What if this backfires? Um, and instead, within 20 minutes, they had asked me if they could live together. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was at South by Southwest, and I was shocked by that. It seemed like they were best friends, and they basically yeah. lived together throughout all of yeah. production. And, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think where you were going with this, though, is that sense that when we were talking about how big this is, but if you have these two yes. at the center of it, it also gives you... Yeah. F- it also gives you a freedom because it gives you like this nucleus that is it is so grounded in their it's friendship. grounded without being too, without being clipped um without clipping their wings i should say in terms of forcing them to be just straight men like mm-hmm. i they were allowed to be specific um comedic characters but grounded at the center of it and i think that's a that's a skill that they have that i benefited from you know that they could be very different from one another very funny, but grounded enough to support the more outlandish kind of tonal choices. So let's talk about building around them. Yeah. You know, I, I will say this when, when I, I was at the South by Southwest premiere and, and it was such it was a the best night of my life. It was such a wonderful screening. <laughs> and I, I remember turning towards my uh, editor. I was like, Jesus Christ, Olivia Wilde can fucking direct. Yes. And then I also looked and it was watching and I said, oh, that credit makes just a ton of sense. And it was Allison Jones. Yes. And um, in that sense of building this high school, building this thing, uh, they're beautiful, they're wonderful, but there's also just something about her films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not that there's a sameness in them, but there is just something out of the box, but so wonderful. And I, so not only do I want to talk about working with her, but because I also I think there's a matter of like, how does one dial up a GG character? How does, yes. where does one go with this? And, I, and you obviously have a, an acting background and, and a vision for this, but I have to imagine she was a wonderful partner in kind of figuring out how to build that ensemble, right? Full on. I mean, Allison was my co-pilot. She was my collaborator in making what would become Booksmart. We sat together and crafted the tone through casting, which I believe 90% of a film is casting. We would watch two people on an, on a shot on an iPhone if they were interesting to watch, they had interesting performances, and she understood that this movie would rest on a framework built by specificity of character, that we would need people who were fresh and yet professional enough to handle what was a very tight shoot, um, but, but fresh enough that they would feel authentic and would represent a wide array of personalities because what you're trying to do I think with a film like this that does poke at your nostalgia is to feel specific enough that it will trigger a memory of someone you knew or someone you were and I think where people probably go off course is when they think I'm going to create kind of a vague broad um, cast of characters that sort of could be anyone an everyman what is an everyman that's nothing no I've never met an everyman Mm -hmm. someone feels real and therefore makes you feel seen or makes you feel delighted because they are specific. And she has a skill for finding characters who uh, 
have an, a natural essence that that is um, that is unique. And I think she seeks out authenticity above all else. But what she's willing to do is work harder, search longer, listen more, and that allows you to see such a, an incredible range of actors, many of whom in this case had never worked before. And Allison took the time to pre-read them and work with them before presenting them to me. I also wanted to be involved a lot more than many directors and she was very hospitable towards that desire. You know, I used to, I was a casting assistant for Mally Finn, who was one of the greats mm. and is no longer with us, but taught me so much about the value, the, the importance of casting. And so when I showed up the first day and I said, Allison, I'm gonna be here a lot and we're gonna talk a lot. And she was like, great, great. And she would call me on a Sunday morning. I remember she called me on Sunday at 9 a.m. to say, you gotta come to the office now. You gotta come see this kid. And I was like, what are you doing? It's Sunday. She's like, well, you know, sometimes the kids, they have school so they can only meet on weekends. So I've been here every weekend. I was like, what? I had no idea. You gotta come meet this kid. He's amazing, he's amazing. And I went in, I drove there, um, I sort of handed the child I was holding like to Jason and I was like, I gotta go to see Allison. Um, and I met Austin Crute, who was so extraordinary in the room that I said, we have to cast him right now. He left and I said, he's Alan. Alan, a character that wasn't even um, much of anything before I met him. That's the thing, like we cast the movie and then those characters told me what the movie should be. And when I watched their auditions, I was rewriting it as I was watching them. And Katie Silberman, our screenwriter, was so involved in that. You know, I'd send her auditions and say like, this person has given us something. and kind of woken me up to the potential of this character. Um, for instance, uh, Noah Galvin and Austin Crute each read for the same role and they were both so interesting and different that we said, let's just make it two roles and build a whole world for them. So I think that Allison allows for the evolution to take place. When presented with um, a sort of studio mandate, she sees it as a, a suggestion, a starting off point, but she doesn't get boxed in. She's not lazy. You know, when I'd say, well, I wanna make sure that we have a really representative and diverse cast. She's like, what I'm gonna do is bring you the greatest people, but I'm gonna look at everyone. And if you look at everyone, you end up with a diverse cast. The problem is most people look at the same pool. And I was so excited that, you know, we weren't looking at things with a sort of tokenism. It wasn't like, well, let's find an Asian kid. It was like, turns out the best person for this role is Asian. The best person for this role is mixed race. It doesn't, it doesn't occur to her to separate people by anything except their like natural unique essence. And she really empathizes. But the patience it takes to meet that many actors and the patience that it takes to kind of talk inexperienced actors through the process and to see what they might have buried underneath their fear of, you know, that is inherent in the process. I just admire it deeply. The, you'd, you'd mentioned music before. So yes. I imagine this is, um, when you're, you're giving this initial pitch and you're, you're seeing this oh. thing, it, it, uh, how, did, did you imagine that many cues? Yeah. That, that was something you, you, well, that's an old school thing, right? If you think of fast times, there's like 36 cues. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, and that time it was a lot cheaper. They, that movie <laughs> that was, was about, like full of Led Zeppelin. See, that was the thing that I was, th I mean, you don't have Led Zeppelin, but I was thinking about the fact that, um, in addition to be like, wow, this is bold vision. I, I, I'm starting to imagine someone in Annapurna going, starting to add up the music supervisor budget. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, it definitely, so, so Chelsea was a huge part of that because she's a music lover. And when I pitched, I pitched pages of music references and she said, 
this really helps us understand the tone that you're going for and it seems like from what you want you're going to need a sizable music budget and of course it wasn't massive by any means but within our budget it was a larger percentage than it would typically be because for me it was a big part of it i mean i think when telling a story about adolescence I had to acknowledge that for many of us, our adolescence was defined by the music we listened to, the music that allowed us to survive, the music that still brings us back to that emotional state. I, I can relive my high school senior spring listening to, uh, you know, probably 12 songs. So I wanted to create that for the film. I wanted to prioritize the collection of the right music, and I wanted to figure out what really allowed the viewer to be taken on the same kind of emotional path that I was. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible to control the audience's reaction, but music is probably the most effective way to bring people to your perspective in a very immediate way. And I, I knew that that I was gonna want, I was gonna have a lot of fun with it. And we had a great music supervisor in Brian Ling, who's one of my dear friends and isn't a music supervisor really. He's a, he's a, a music producer and manager, but he knows a lot. And I just wanted someone who had an encyclopedic knowledge of music, um, who could help me kind of figure out how to assemble a soundtrack from the thousands of tracks that I had in our Booksmart playlists mm -hmm. that I would play on set that I distributed to the cast. Well, that's what I was going to wonder is how many of these things are to some degree, we'll just use one. We'll just use, uh, you know, how it, it, the, um, oh, what's the, oh, crummy, the, the big moment uh, with the, um, the Perfume Genius song. Oh, yes, yeah, Slip so Away, I, yes. So, that, so this is a big emotional moment. Yes. That seems, when I was rewatching it yesterday, it felt to me like I, one feels like an emotional writing yes. to that. Is it's, that something you know that you're, you're that doing? That one is really interesting to me because it was in an accident. And okay. it's funny because I just directed a short where I used uh, actually another Perfume Genius song, Other Side, as my inspiration for, for the short in how I would write it. And so that was a more traditional kind of method. I heard the song, I thought about the emotional beats, and I was like, I'm going to write this short to reflect the emotional beats of this song. With... That pool scene in Booksmart, I shot it knowing the emotional intention I had in mind. Then I saw what Caitlin did and was blown away by it. I mean, how does someone go through five emotional experiences underwater in a minute? She's just the best. But once we were in the edit, I would, I would blast music all the time in the edit just to kind of play with things and just for, you know, ambiance. And I happened to put that on right at the moment that our editor hit the space bar as we were reviewing that scene and then I turned it up I turned up the song and I was like wait a minute what's happening here it just fit like a puzzle it was like it was meant to be and when it ended I just said holy shit and my editor spun around in his chair at that time it was Brent White because we worked with two editors on this film Jamie Gross and Brent White when Brent spun around his chair and just looked at me he's like well that works <laughs> and I took a video of the of the cut and sent it to Brian and I was like we are going to need to make this happen. But then there were other songs that I had in mind that were kind of dream songs. Um, you know, I really wanted to use LCD Sound System's Oh Baby, and I knew that it would be very hard to get, and I knew that it was what I had in mind when shooting, but it was probably never gonna happen. It was like some songs I had in mind that were, you know, just sort of dream scenarios that 
some didn't work out because it was very impossible to license either because of the expense or because certain songs use so many samples that are impossible to yeah. source. That happens that, with a lot with hip hop. With hip hop, yeah. yeah. I mean, my original soundtrack for this was probably 95% hip hop. And then... I don't think people realize that what a problem it is to put some of these hip hop songs yeah. in movies because they're so impossible to clear yeah. with the samples. Yeah, I mean, it was like me tra- tr- trying to track down every Tribe Called Quest sample and just saying like, guys, where did you get this one? But I really felt lucky with what we got. I mean, I was mm-hmm. blown away. I couldn't believe we could have a range of Perfume Genius to Santi Gold yeah. to Jurassic 5, you know, to LCD. So the, the soundtracks, I mean, that, I feel like if, you know, you kind of get to know yourself as a director when you make your first film, you're like, this is kind of what it's going to be like for me this is what the experience is to me and I can tell music will always be a big part of the process for me and it's fun now lining up next projects and thinking how is the soundtrack going to be part of this experience the other element here is transitions Mm -hmm. okay and there are some here that you have to feel or maybe you have to experiment with you know there's that one that goes into the um did they take the lift with Jason yes. to the theater um, party? Yes. To the theater party. So, so you have the porn joke, and then there's a pause, and you let us live in that awkwardness, and then you give the one. There's the wonderful Cardi B joke. Yes. And then it's boo at the door. Yes. And they're at a dinner theater. Those three things don't add up. You don't see that. You it's don't funny. read that on paper, and yet that ability to find those juxtapositions and make them work is kind of the magic of of book smart i i think that's a really good example of what i realized the key to the film was um once in the edit i realized that audiences are so literate in film they are so primed to follow story beats They have watched many films. By the time they are 15, most audiences have watched many films and now many great TV shows. And you don't have to spell things out for them. And in fact, what you should never do is pander to them and let them be bored by your slow sort of patronizing rhythm. So I think it was fun to lean into that, particularly within this genre, thinking people have expectations for these genres and we are telling a story they think they know. You know, last day of school, they're going to go find parties. Now they're going to find a party. What's this one going to be? It's going to be something debaucherous. It's going to, you know, people are sort of ahead of you. And the fun game with that is the misdirect. Mm -hmm. And when cutting that transition from the lift to the theater party, I found myself just tightening it more and more and more each day because I thought they don't need to see oh, what's this? This doesn't look like the house. Wonder what's happening in here. They don't need the moment after the porn to realize, to to lean into and say, how crazy was that? I find myself bristling when I watch films or TV where characters spend time saying, can you believe that just happened? It's like, well, now I'm bored by it. (laughs) If you had moved on, I would have thought about that later, and now I am bored by this choice. So I, I loved being able to depend on the intelligence of the audience and to take advantage of their of their uh, incredible knowledge of, of film. And I, I think that when we underestimate them, they, in return, 
disengage. But I, I have to say, when I watch that sequence, every time I think, this is a weird movie. <laughs> 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 like, every time I'm like, what? Are, this is crazy. What is this weird movie? The, the, I think your leads also are a huge thing here because they are so believable as being, they very much embody a little bit of that awkwardness of the two girls that didn't go out in high school. Yes. But they also, you haven't put them inside a box. And so they're very quick on their feet. They're very, Beanie in particular, the personality is very much like she gets past social awkwardness or moves yes. away. And they, and so part of it is, is they can go big and up to a moment and up to in something in a way, and also the way they play off each other. You don't, by not keeping them in a box, yes. you, you, you can kind of lay off them a little bit. It's a really good point. I, there, one thing that was so valuable about the characters they each created was that their characters were inherently sort of... Um, uh, not very good at social integration. And so a lot of like the small talk that would, or, or sort of a t- small talk that I would associate with assimilation, sort of like social graces that we would expect from people in high school. These two very smart, very serious, and slightly awkward girls don't have time for. So you could cut through it. With, with their characters, you could you could skip steps. You could cut through. Beanie's character has no problem walking in and saying, what is this? What is this? What is this the wrong address? Where are we going? It's something, you know, my sister is kind of like that. And I love it about her that she doesn't suffer fools and she doesn't waste time on sort of social niceties. If something's not working, she's like, no, I don't like this. Let's move on. And I think I admire it because I'm someone who is deeply, overly empathetic and sensitive to how I, people are sort of feeling and perceiving me and I'm perceiving them and there's like that's why I think I do have social anxiety is because I get to a party and I think like am I behaving in a way that is respectful of the host and also of the other people and when can I leave because I'd rather not be here like I loved actually creating characters that have no time for that bullshit and it was really fun to be able to use that to allow for the momentum of the film to continue at that pace is that one thing you were talking about you know I think the one of the mistakes that people make I think that with first-time directors, there's there's kind of two boats one goes in. Those who know what they know and know what they don't know, and those who try and hide that they don't know mm. everything, mm-hmm. and therefore are kind of feeling like they need to do. I, I I'm curious about. Mm. I'm very I'm very curious about in that sense of if one of the things that you really could feel is you were talking. You have a very clear sense of 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 a pace and a vision of this. Is is that sense of how to work with a cast to find to find that moment, which I think that maybe someone who doesn't come from a heavy acting background or having done a lot of work with actors doesn't yeah. does can't necessarily understand what a performer can handle. Is, right? Does that make any sense? It does. I think my background as an actor prepared me well because I understood deeply that most people on sets just want to be trusted more. The actors, the DP the production designer, the costume designer, every single department head wants to be trusted and that a director, a good one, allows for that team to do their best work, creates the best environment conducive to the best performances, the best work in every direction. So I loved giving the actors the opportunity to show me what they thought each scene should be and to tell them, what I thought, but in the form of a question. And 
to allow for them to see the the larger picture at all times, to continue to give them context that would a- allow them to see the importance of, let's say, something like pacing within a scene. I'd say, remember, we just came from this place and we've got to get there fast because this is where you're headed next, next which is what an actor needs because you, you're, you're so myopic. You're within the experience. You have to be so present. You can't possibly be so zoomed out at every moment. You wouldn't be focused. That's what a director is for, to keep that zoomed out perspective and to say... I will make sure you don't go off the path in terms of tone or momentum. So I loved being able to empathize with them completely. Even though I did have a very clear idea in mind, it was extraordinary to watch them continuously better my my ideas, my instincts, my my assumptions. Um, whether it was by letting them improvise and being delighted by what they came up with or just seeing that when my my definition of of a certain emotion was different for each of them, and that's a fun part of the process. But I will say it's the same for for all interaction with departments. Like I think when crafting a shot, I loved acknowledging what I don't know to your to your point. I really loved acknowledging what I didn't know so that I could allow for that person who did know the answer to feel empowered. That was a fun part for me to say to the DP, let's say Jason McCormick, who was so wonderful, to say like, this is the mood I want here. Help me find that mood. What is it? As opposed to, now I watched 17 films this weekend and now I'm going to pretend that I know how Hitchcock created tension. It was like, no, so you know that vibe? You know that feeling? I was constantly kind of demonstrating emotions for different departments, even down to the sound mix. I'd say, I wanted to feel anticipatory, but also sort of exciting, but still based in fear, but a weird sense of humor there. And people would help me translate my ideas into different forms. So... I actually think the fun of directing is acknowledging what you don't know. I always liken it to being a coach of a basketball team, even though I'm not good at basketball. I always liken directing to being a good basketball coach. And a bad basketball coach would be eager to get on the court and do it all themselves. And a good one recognizes game where there's game. Right. And that's what I felt like I did the whole time. Editing. Yes. A lot of this stuff worked. A musical number worked. I don't know how, but it worked. Wonderful, you know, and and, and that some of those transitions worked, and 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 the 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 dolls worked. Was there things that was there things that did not work? Was there stuff that you had to? It, it was part of this in in going big and swinging big. The idea I need to land five of these, yeah, but I'm going to try these ten. Was, yes. was there stuff like that? Yeah, for instance, in the kind of end of the second act beginning of the third there were there were comedic swings we took thinking that we might need them to hold up the framework of a comedy i had written them with katie thinking that we would need to rely on jokes 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 on goal at a certain point to keep people laughing because you assume when you're writing a comedy like well it's been a couple beats without a joke there should be something here because we had no way of knowing at that point that the performances would be so well-tuned and so authentic that the audience was willing to sustain themselves and be emotional as opposed to laughing for a stretch of, you know, 15 minutes. Um, And in a comedy, that seems like a crazy idea. So we had set pieces that were sort of comedy heavy and a little bit more slapstick towards the end of the film that we removed once we knew that, that we didn't need them, that, that, that somehow the tapestry was hanging on the wall without that many bolts. And I, I felt 
um, you know, heartbroken that we were losing moments that were genuinely funny, but aware that we were lucky that we could take them out. Um, and, you know, there, some come to mind just because they were so great. Caitlin Deaver is a real physical comedian as well, and she had a scene where she di she distracted the cops so that the rest of the students, the kids could leave the party. And I just told her, do whatever you do, you need to do to stop them from looking behind them. So it was just an opportunity for like real physical comedy slapstick and she's brilliant in it. There was, um, you know, there were a few things like that that I just thought, wait a minute, we can get away with losing a laugh there and they'll stay with us. And actually then the emotional impact is greater. I always think of this, um, thought, I'm going to call it a quote, it's a thought about comedy that Mike O'Brien, who plays the pizza guy in our film, and it's just a great, I mean, that was an awesome cameo he did as a favor. He's just one of the best comedy writers out there. Um, but he says comedy works like a slingshot. And the further you pull it back, the farther it'll fly. But if you don't have the courage to pull it back, it, it won't go very far. And you see like weak comedies are just like weak slingshots, just like boom, 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 sort of dribbling off the the thing. But it's really fun to say, oh, wait, these actors are so good that we can pull this way back. I noticed you had Katie on set, yes? Yes. Okay. How much of this is also, let's try this. This might work, this might not work. Yeah. But how are we covered in terms of story yeah, if, if we not. cut it? Mm -hmm. And I imagine, I mean, I'm, I'm sure she was a great resource on other ways mm -hmm. too, but I have mm -hmm. to imagine that kind of like, okay, if we do this big beat, yep. are you still going to under, how are we going to, and we lose it, can yeah. we still get them, you know, yes. the, whatever the emotional beat or the plot beat is that it happens. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's sort of the constant frenzy of rewriting that's happening on set whether based on logistical challenges, oops, we lost a location, oops, we lost the sun, we can't do that scene as planned, does it still work? I feel like that's the big question of every day on every set. Does it still work if we don't you, have this thing? Because you don't have a lot of time on this, right? No, we had 26 days, including the pre-shoot day, so it was really 25 days. We just slammed it all in. My work in TV had really prepared me for that because I don't understand sitting down. It's a matter of rehearsing when you're setting up a shot. I don't get the idea of leisurely lunches and breaks but Katie was so good at kind of removing the writer's tendency or writer's I don't know I, I guess I can call it tendency great writers do this where they are attached to the words and the great amount of work that went into creating the structure she was not um overly burdened and therefore didn't burden me with anxiety about maintaining well-written scenes it was just well, if I remove all of that, does it still work? Because I'd like to be very efficient. I like to be very efficient in general. I like to be like clean and efficient so that you can play when there's that space that's made by the efficiency. So for instance, when we were cutting, sort of at the last second when we were sound mixing the graduation scene, there used to be this long speech. There were two long speeches. The character of Jared had a long speech and then Molly had a long speech. And I said, can we lose almost everything? We took it all out and I said, can we just pretend that she got up there and had very little to say and was for once speechless? And it worked. And I looked at Katie thinking she'd say like, are you kidding me? Do you know how long I spent <laughs> on these speeches? And she was like, it works. Take it all out. And I was so grateful for that kind of collaborative energy. Mm. It's, it's rare. You uh, teased earlier, uh, you, you have another project? Yes, we're in prep. You're in prep. Yeah. 
What uh, what are we allowed to know about that? It is a thriller mm-hmm. called Don't Worry, Darling. And uh, it's another one that Katie and I are rewriting completely. And it's a concept that couldn't be further from Booksmart, but I'd say the common de- common denominator is a story about women um, women connecting over something other than men, but also just just the the power and strength of women when linked. Um, and it's fun to have to create another very solid tone. Of course, you know, horror thriller is the is just as subjective as comedy in terms of creating tone. And what scares me is likely different than what scares you. So that challenge of can I create something that will push your buttons in a very specific and sharp way, that's really fun. And this one, in terms of kind of visual risk taking and, you know, flexing of (laughs) weird instincts is like really, really bonkers. But so fun. And I just feel excited to to dive back in with another team of collaborators this one's going to be interesting because i'm in it oh you are which is probably a terrible idea (laughs) but i'm just too late now (laughs) are you like majorly in it yeah i'm in a lot of it and it's um i think my tendency to to pick something that scares me and i think the next big challenge after Booksmart was to write something then put myself in it but I've been getting some good advice you know all I do is ask people's advice to director how do you do this how do you do all of these things and I asked um Clint Eastwood how do you direct yourself he's been doing it for so long and he gave me really solid advice that I'll pass on in case anyone's doing it he said when you are directing yourself you will you will kind of uh you will undercover yourself out of shame so you're on your own close-up and you'll move on because you feel like an asshole because you're just you know you feel like you're like Warren Beatty shooting reds doing 76 takes for a close-up you're just like yeah I'm fine I'm sure we've got it and you'll shortchange your own opportunity to create something worthwhile and therefore you'll shortchange the audience and their experience so he said when you are on your close-up give yourself another take always one more than you think and I was like that's great tangible like, solid advice especially for the guy who doesn't give most people two takes I know so like fast. cool cool can I have another take <laughs> yeah. um, but it is uh, it, it's exciting it's exciting um, I just had to I don't remember if it was you or Maddie but someone posted something one of yes. you two did you shoot something with, yes. with Maddie Libertique yes well, we just did something it's the it's short film okay. um, with Margaret Qualley that I just finished mixing and it's really cool because Maddie and Margaret are both such ballers and it's really, it's fun. And we shot it in New York and you know, it was a chance for all of us to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be really cool and it could end up, you know, I don't know, being seen by no one or everyone, but it was for me a real wish fulfillment experience. Cause I had worked with Maddie as an actor mm-hmm. and to be able to collaborate with him as a director was so fun. And the whole team was just great. Something you're just we're in mixing. It's a short. Maybe yeah. is there is, is there is there an outlet attached to this thing, or is there something we can maybe, see? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. All yes. Right. All right. So maybe we'll get to see it sooner yes, than later. Yes, I hope so. All right, Olivia. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a joy. This, this is, is great. Yeah, I'm glad we got to do this. 